0: This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello Rebels and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast episode 21. Today's episode is with Mark Lefebvre and we're going to be talking all about how to work better with libraries and bookstores and how you can get your books into libraries. But first to last week's question. I asked, "What was your personal verb?" After talking to Damon Swade, who spoke both about how to improve your characters with verbs and also your personal branding, Val Neal said, "I want to say educate, but it's probably correct, which I, which I'm sure is sarcasm and is absolutely hilarious if it is." Uh, so thank you for that one. Amy Sun said, "Her word is cultivate." She remembers the audible click in her head that she got when she found the right verb. It fits everything that she does and how she approaches situations. She cultivates plants, animals, thoughts, energy, stories, herself, everything she used um, all the related words and antonyms as tools or methods depending on what she's doing she's also worked out that uh, many of sorry she's also worked out many of her character verbs um, which will help her when going forward and so obviously she enjoyed the episode last one Matt Goodall said um, his immediate thought was care It probably goes well with the word that you asked us to think about at the start of the year. So that was in my Facebook group. I asked everybody what their focus would be for the year. His was value, as in how can he add value to others and their interactions with him, which I just think is so wonderful. And what a lovely, lovely verb to have. This week's question is, where do you get your books? Do you buy them online? And if so, what store do you typically shop at? Or do you perhaps go to physical stores? Do you go to big chains or perhaps independent stores? Or what about libraries? I would love to know where you get your books from. The book recommendation this week is, of course, our lovely guest's most recent publication, which is an author's guide to working with libraries and bookstores by Mark Lefebvre and I will add a link in the show notes to that. Mark is very, very generously running a giveaway as part of this episode. He is giving away a signed paperback which he will ship anywhere in the world. To enter, you'll find a link in the show notes to the Rafflecopter and uh, it will also be on my website in the episode post. So in personal project news this week... (sighs) I, I don't think I can avoid the C word much longer, and no, you devious little rebels, I don't mean the naughtiest of naughty words. Sadly, I am talking about coronavirus. What I will say is that I am thinking of you all, and I'm hoping beyond hope that you are all safe and healthy and with your loved ones and, you know, not killing each other. <laughs> which I may end up doing this week, um, or any in any of the following weeks where we are all trapped in a house. So really, the only reason I'm mentioning it is because I would like to keep this a, you know, pretty much coronavirus-free podcast. I have been listening to loads. It's coming up everywhere. It's in, on my social feeds. It's in the news. It's it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. So I would like this to be somewhere where people can get away from it if you would like to. So this is my one and only mention um, and yeah, may you all be safe, but on to the exciting personal update, I did indeed finish editing the Anatomy of Prose last week. um I actually edited it twice last week, once incorporating my critique partner's feedback, and then I did my final round of editing, which I call my root and tweak, uh, where I read. <laughs> Every single line, every single word, every single sentence, and I scrutinise it, and I will tweak, you know, commas and and minute words and minutiae essentially, and um, it gave myself a big fat headache doing that, which I still haven't got over. Um, but yes, it is done. It is with the editor this week, and it should be back by the end of this week, which means very excitingly, I am starting to recruit for my street team. So. If you would like to help me with the launch of The Anatomy of Prose, which will be launching on the 29th of May, and you think between now and then, you would have the time to either read the book and uh, be able to either leave a review on um, one of the many stores, or on your blog, or your podcast host and you would like to talk to me, um, or yes, if there's any possible thing that you can do to help, then I have a very short form if you would like to help me, which you can find at bit.ly forward slash AOP team. So bit.ly forward slash AOP team. And I will put that link in the show notes. Um, I've also posted it in my Facebook and if you're on my mailing list I will also be sending that out. So in the coming week then, I will be starting to really prepare the launch materials, Um, I will be pitching podcasters, I will also be working on the workbook, the resource downloads, there is like a multitude of shit that I need to get done, Um, and all alongside looking after my son all day, every day, and probably drinking gin, Um, yes, (laughs) yes. So, listener rebel of the week this week is HB Line. HB said, Okay, I'm going back to my teen years. They are a gold mine for rebellion, aren't they, for all of us, darling? Um, she went to a good school in a nice little tourist town. In sixth form, I was close friends with two boys and we had a lot of free periods together. Rather than hanging out in the common room with everyone else, we used to go into town, which was allowed for everyone in year 10 and up, and find a quiet bit of the park or castle ruins and get very, very stoned. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Um, I dread to think how many lessons I turned up to with bloodshot eyes and terrible munchies. Next time, I'll tell you about the interesting cocktail I drank with some girlfriends one lunchtime. (laughs) Brilliant. I love it. I love all of your rebellions every week. Thank you so much for sending them to me. It literally makes my day when I get to read these out. Um, If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small or somewhere in between. You can email your rebel story to to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. One new patron today, welcome to Beth Ball. Thank you so, so much for joining me and thank you to all of my patrons for that matter. All of you guys helped to ensure that this podcast continues. You helped to pay for the hosting and for my time and I don't, I don't really know how to say thank you, like just just thank you guys. It means a lot to me. If you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus essays, posts, and content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha and that's Sasha with a c and not an s today's episode is sponsored by the ever fabulous Kobo so I will play a word from our sponsor and then we will get on with the show hi I'm Stephanie and I'm Tara and we're from
1: Kobo Writing Life Kobo's free fast and easy self-publishing platform KWL was built by authors for authors and our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world.
0: Our author-first approach is why we built our promotions tool, an easy and affordable way for you to market your book directly to Kobo readers right in the KWL dashboard. We post upcoming Kobo sales, many of which are exclusive to KWL authors. We offer lots of promos that don't require you to drop the price because we know, when you're publishing wide, it's a pain to coordinate pricing across multiple retailers.
1: Are you using free as a marketing strategy? You can submit your books to be featured on Kobo's free page, which gets a ton of traffic.
0: If you're a KWL author and don't yet have access to the promotions tool, email us at writinglife@kobo.com at and we'll get you sorted. We're all about providing stellar support.
1: If you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com writinglife. We hope to see your books on Kobo soon. Happy, Happy writing! writing.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am with Mark Lefebvre. Mark is a writer, editor, book industry expert, professional speaker, and a self-defined all-round book nerd. Welcome, Mark.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's, It's a wonderful new year. We get to hang out again. It's pretty fun.
0: I know, I know. I have to say... Your bio, for the amount that you have done, is possibly the shortest bio I have ever <laughs> read out. I am, I'm wildly impressed that you got your career in, into that. Also, didn't know you were an editor. Uh,
1: I mean, not a, not a developmental editor. I'm not, I'm not a good editor like that. I, I select stories for anthologies. So uh. I, I, I tend to find the stuff I really like and I, I, very, I do very little of the actual Christine Catherine Rush does most of the actual line editing I just do the high level stuff with the work with the authors but so yeah selecting editor as opposed to an actual good editor the kind of editor I need to hire all the time.
0: (laughs) Um, Tell everyone a little bit about you and your journey and how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah sure I mean I knew ever since I was little I always wanted to be a storyteller it was those little Fisher-Price figurines I used to play with and, and make up stories for hours and hours, and there would be continuing sagas. So over the course of a month, I would I would have this, it was almost like episodic TV shows where it was like cliffhangers, and then, and then when I got to play again, I would continue the story. Um, and then I discovered the, 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 the permanence of the magic when you actually put the words on paper and you leave and they're still there, and someone else can pick them up and read them. And, and I started off with little stick figure drawings and cartoons, uh, and then it eventually graduated to when I discovered, my mom's Underwood typewriter in the closet. And I was uh, 14 years old and it was covered, you know, in a little dust cover and I pulled it out and went, oh, this is kind of cool. And, I, and I, spent, uh, I spent my summer when I was 14 years old writing a really terrible, yeah, I guess you would call it fan fiction because it was Conan the Barbarian based <laughs> on the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and the comic books I had had, Savage Sword of Conan and stuff. And, and I just completely used the character Conan and created this fantasy adventure. And I thought that I thought it was a gigantic epic. It's probably only 30,000 words, but I spent the entire <laughs> summer vitamin D deficient in the basement, pounding away using my Dungeons and Dragons manuals and guidebooks as sort of resources and research. So I was like, if I needed a monster, I needed to look up the monster and use that. Um, it was horrible. Uh, and because I was 14 years old and sex obsessed, I mean, every second scene Conan gets to have sex with someone. Um, <laughs> But that was the start, and I and I think I submitted my very first story to a CBC radio contest. So CBC is kind of like NPR in the states or or BBC uh, in in the UK, and uh, and and I submitted. It was a horrible. I mean, 15 years old. It was just like this terrible, tragic story of 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 a guy who loves a girl and doesn't get her, and then he dies. Right. So I mean, that's that's all. My stories were were very morbid like that. Um, I did not win the contest, but it was my very first rejection. Uh, and, and I got really, really good at rejection over the years. I've, I've amassed thousands of rejections from, you know, from, from women as well as from editors <laughs> magazines. So um, I, I kind of developed a bit of a hard nose uh, for, for that. My very first story was published in 92, finally, the same year I started in bookselling. So that was like a really wonderful parallel track. And, and I think it was $5 US plus contributors copy. And I was so excited to get that story published. And then my very first horror story, which was published not too long after that, received honorable mention in the year's best fantasy and horror, edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Wendling. And and that was exciting. Um, but I finally did my first book in 2004. And it was a collection of previously published short stories. And I self-published it way back when you couldn't self-publish because nobody would ever take you serious. It's 2004. It was 10 years before the, the Kindle gold rush. And so you know, I took uh, my best friend, Steve, and I had a DJ company called Stark Entertainment. Steve and Mark, you put the names together, Stark. So he was a graphic designer. And I was like, well, for a case of beer, could you do my cover for me? And, oh, can you do a logo, Stark Publishing? Because I don't want anyone to know I'm self-publishing this. Uh, and so that was sort of the beginning uh, of my entry into into self-publishing. Now, I also have traditionally published and self-published. And I'm, I know, I'm of the mind that uh, there's benefits in both, that there are Reasons why you may want to work with a publisher, and there's reasons why you may not want to work with a publisher. And so, my journey as a bookseller, as an editor, uh, I've edited several uh, traditionally published anthologies and self-published anthologies. Um, but my journey has always been that each book, each new product that comes out, uh, has its own path, has its own journey. Just like every writer has its own journey. And so, uh, for every every writing project I work on, I really determine what's the best path for this. Like what path is this child going to go on? And, you know, some are, some are bound for college or, or, or uni and, and, and other ones are, are are straight into the trades or other ones are going to be, you know, kind of like me sit in the basement and write stories all day.
0: Um, I love that. And something that you said right at the end there, um, about, you know, how each book baby is going to go into the world. I, um, I can't remember if it was on the podcast um, or if it was just in conversation, but I was speaking to HB Line, and she really opened my eyes um, to the fact that each book doesn't have to be written in the same way so you can you might need to outline one book but just because you are planning and being a plotter with that book does not mean that the next one necessarily um, has to be you may you may want to write into the duck and and that kind of blew my mind at the time and it sort of gave me that permission to be less rigid and think that you know once you had a thing that's what you had to stick to and yeah i just i think there's so much truth in that
1: Oh, I love that. That is fantastic advice. And, and, even, and even the voice, right? Now you write nonfiction and fiction and you write different genres. Mm-hmm. You're going to use a different, I mean, I use a different voice with my nonfiction books on writing and publishing than I do in my horror. And so, I mean, obviously there's going to be a different style too.
0: Absolutely. Um, you have a new book out called Working with Libraries and Bookstores. So congratulations on publishing Thank you um, and, and that's why we are here today. Um, your, your new book aims to help indie authors work with bookstores, obviously, and libraries. So um, first of all, I think it would be helpful to tell everyone how that, you know, library and bookstore distribution actually works because it's a bit mythical, I think.
1: It, it is and and this is interesting it actually comes back from my own podcast dark reflections on the writing and publishing i actually had listeners ask specifically could you talk about working with bookstores and i did an episode could you talk about libraries i've listened then, to
0: that episode it was
1: and, like... and, and and then i thought oh some people want to learn differently so i thought i'll put the book together and i thought the book was going to be 10,000 words <laughs> um, but then as i got into it and this is a challenge i got into it and went well there's working with physical bookstores and physical libraries. And then there's working with ebooks because you can get your ebooks into Overdrive and Baker and Taylor and all these different hoopla and all these different library systems. Now, and, and similarly there's print and there's, uh, as you know, cause you're in the UK and I'm in Canada that there's a public lending right. So there's all of these complications. So I just kept going and going in this, in this 10,000 word book, I think it's 40,000. I, I, I mean, I, I ended up cutting it back down to 40,000 and just realizing I was just going too far. But I think, the, the the challenge is um, I wanted the book to be applicable to any writer, whether they're traditionally published or self published. I wanted self published authors to understand more about traditional publishing and and why that sometimes is beneficial. So, for example, um, in order, I, I because I have uh, traditional publishers and I also self publish, I know with my traditionally published books from Dundurn, for example, which is one of Canada's what's well, Canada's largest independent. Uh, Um, publisher. I know I can call virtually any bookstore in North America uh, or in Canada and say, the book is available. It's fully returnable. Here's the ISBN. Here's where you can order it. You order it from University of Toronto distribution, uh, right? UTP uh, distribution. Or if I'm calling the States, I know it's available, uh, fully returnable from Ingram um, because there are Canadian publishers. They have a warehouse here, but they use Ingram in the States. Um, I know with my self-published books, I have to do a similar thing, and, and so, you know, you give them the ISBN, you give them the price, you, you make sure that it's a full discount. But when it's usually, if I'm using uh, Ingram Spark is the preferred, uh, you know, uh, print-on-demand solution, where you can actually set the the discount and give it a deeper discount, you can actually make it returnable, which I actually advise authors not to do, because I did that in 2004. It was fantastic, because I could call up a Barnes & Noble and say, I'm going to be in Pittsburgh uh, you know, near you near your downtown location. Here's my ISBN. The book is a full discount. It's fully returnable. I'd love to come in and do a lunchtime signing. And I was able to get signings at chain bookstores all the time. And it was fantastic until somebody at Chapters Indigo, which is kind of like WH Smith or Barnes Noble here in Canada. Until somebody at Chapters Indigo, one of the buyers found out I had this book, ordered 300 copies to put in you know, a copy or two in, in in a bunch of stores across Canada, which was exciting, right? I mean, it's it's every writer's dream to walk into a bookstore and see their book on a shelf. And it was really exciting, except six months later, when the returns cost me more than the sales, and they only returned half of them, but it still cost me more than I earned on the sales. So I was in the red for a long time. Now, I did hear from somebody at Ingram when I was at a, a, a book industry meeting in, uh, in New York in, in June last year that only 1% of all uh, books from Ingram actually get returned. So I think the downside there was I had um, a bulk order placed and it's the bulk orders you have to be careful about. Now I was with an author, uh, Sarah, and, and of course I'm, I'm completely blanking on her last name. Uh, it'll, it'll come to me after we finish the interview, but we were at uh, Novelist Inc in Florida And we were at uh, Haslam's bookstore, an independent bookstore. I I I organized a books and beer tour because that's kind of the things that I do. So we started at the bookstore, then we went to a bunch of breweries, and I was so excited. And she was an independent this is an independently published title she had made available through Ingram, but she had made it returnable. And we walked into the bookstore. We found one of my traditionally published books on the shelf because I actually wrote about Haslam's haunted bookstores and libraries and. Uh, What's his name? Jack Kerouac allegedly haunts that location. So they always have a copy of my book in stock. So I always make sure to sign it. But Sarah, two or three of books in her mystery series that were independently published were on the shelf. She had Sarah Rosette. That's her name. See, I finally remembered. And I was so excited uh, and I talked to her about it and she said, Oh yeah, I'm using Ingram spark and I made it fully returnable. And then when I talked to the, uh, the owner, I said, well, why did you bring in Sarah's book? He said, probably because a customer came in talking about her and said she was great. So I ordered in some of her books. And so it is possible for independent authors to get their books in the bookstores, but there's a huge risk involved if you make it returnable or there has to be some sort of connection, right? The, in that case, the bookseller had a customer trusted customer that they liked and wanted to buy her books in print, therefore they ordered them in and they started stocking them. Um, Usually it's a lot of groundwork. Usually it's a lot of uh, having relationships with those local booksellers. And one of the things that I like to do with my own um, uh, non-returnable, because I now use non-returnable by default, um, is if I'm doing an event at, let's say, an independent bookstore, or a local bookstore, and the independent bookstores tend to have more power than those who work at WH Smith or Barnes Noble, because oftentimes head office policies, unless they're a really good manager who likes to break and twist the rules, they follow the rules. And and I mean, the, the rules are rules, but there's there's reasonable business practices you can work around them. Uh, but what I usually do is I will offer to. Uh, buy the existing stock so if they order let's say 50 copies of the book so i can come in and do an event and and i offer to make sure that they're not going to be stuck with them because i used to manage a bookstore so i know you, you, you don't want to be stuck with non-returnable stock because you have to mark it down um, i usually offer to buy any stock at the end so they're not stuck with it but i do ask is that like, could you please give me your staff discount because i know most bookstores offer you know whether a 20 30 percent discount off of books and that that way the bookstore still makes money on those sales, but I don't. Uh, I then have stock because I do a lot of in-person events and signings at you know author tables. So that way, I have stock that I can sell. And and no, I'm not making the full forty percent or fifty percent or whatever the margin is I would make on the on the ones I, I printed for myself. But but at least I'm not screwing the local business. <laughs> at least the business owner recognizes that I understand the importance of what they're at as well, and I'm thinking about their business, not just me. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that's, those are some of the critical aspects of when you're working, wanting to work with a bookstore is you got to remember they're, they're a business just like you are and they need to make money. And so it's, it's kind of like ask, not what your bookstore can do for you, ask what you can do for your bookstore, I think is a good way to approach it. Um, and, and then there's mutual respect. Um, because if they see that you're a professional and you're willing to be professional, um, and 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 you're and you're good for what they what they offer. There's probably a chance they're going to want to stock your books anyway and hand sell them um, because I've hand sold books over the years and usually it's from authors that impressed me in some way that they told me a really cool story about the writing of the book or there was something intriguing about them or or they were just you know it's like the karmic value they put out into the universe. I think uh, when I see People doing good and treating others with respect. I want to help them. <laughs> I want them to be successful. So all of those things are, are, are the layers involved in working with bookstores and libraries.
0: I love um, the. Uh, uh, I thought that was a really good idea to ask for the staff discount as well because it, that is a win-win for everybody that way. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm going to ask about the elephant. <laughs> in the room so uh depending on uh when this goes live uh for those that aren't aware it, at the end of 2019 just before christmas uh Rakutan made the sale of overdrive which will explain all in detail in a second to a hedge fund it was a hedge fund i think wasn't it yeah yes. um <clears throat> Now, um, I'll ask you to explain what Overdrive is and, and all the rectangle and everything in a second. But <laughs> I want to know what you think this spells for library books distribution over the next five years.
1: Okay. Um, let me go back. So Overdrive is um, North America's largest uh, library, uh, digital library distribution company. It was founded in Cleveland, o- Ohio, which is only about a uh, four-hour four drive for me. And uh, Steve, who's the CEO of uh, Overdrive and Founder is a huge book nerd, gigantic book lover. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I worked at Kobo. I worked with Michael Tamblin, and it, it's amazing how similar those two people are in terms of their love and passion for reading and books. And so I remember seeing Steve at, at, at an event at uh, Overdrive a few years ago and I remember just sitting there going, wow, I don't even think that people like Kobo know how much of the people at Overdrive are gigantic book nerds. And so the, the whole culture of Overdrive is getting people to read more, which is brilliant, which is beautiful. When Rakuten acquired Overdrive and Rakuten had acquired Kobo a few years earlier, there was obvious synergies between the two companies. I worked really, really closely with uh, colleagues at Overdrive and I know that regardless of the sale, the DNA of Overdrive is still about the love of reading and the passion and their relationships with libraries is phenomenal. I got to witness it firsthand. I've interacted with these folks even after I left Kobo, you know, spending time with them at book expo America at their booth and, and just chatting with them and going, I even been into the office a few times to, to meet with folks there. I think that overdrive is probably going to continue to do all of the great things they're doing. And I also think that any of the relationships that they still have with Kobo are probably still going to be, strong it doesn't matter who owns them the fact that two companies work well together um, sh- should work I mean I, I think per- perhaps if Amazon bought uh, Rakuten then maybe they'd stop working with Kobo the way the way uh, Goodreads stopped working with Kobo when when they got bought by Amazon um, in terms of Kobo itself I think you know yeah, is there, I, I, is-
0: I, I was gonna ask <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, 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 what do you think will happen to Kobo
1: uh, I mean, Rakuten was an amazing thing for Kobo because, you know, they had the might and power and money of, a, of an Amazon style company. Because, I mean, you got to remember Kobo is a scrappy little upstart company in Canada fighting against, um, you know, the biggest search engine in the world, Google, you know, one of the biggest software uh, and, and device companies in the world, uh, iTunes, the biggest bookseller in the world, <laughs> Amazon. So Rakuten really helped them, you know, uh, f- fund them to keep them going to do to fight the good fight. I actually, uh, I don't think there's any worry for Rakuten deciding to, to, to move Kobo. I think they, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe the culture of Kobo and the culture of Rakuten, they, they do seem to fit in really, really well. I mean, the, the main difference at Kobo is we had to start wearing name tags because it was a very Japanese thing where, you know, you have to wear your name tag over your heart and it's, and it's polite because someone else in the company might not know your name and it makes them feel embarrassed. So it's this really, there's, there's, a, there's a huge amount of respect in things that I learned. So if anything, it just got a little bit more, I mean, Canadians are already polite and apologetic, but then you could learn to be a little bit more respectful in terms of even uh, one of the things I found fascinating as well, apart from the name tags was, um, business cards. You don't just take a business card and slip it in your pocket. When, when you present a business card, it's like, it's like you're, you're proposing. It's like you're presenting this. this and, and when you take a business card, you actually look at it. You actually study it and, and you value it. And you acknowledge it. It's a sign of respect that this is this person is connecting with you. And when, when you think about that, the, think about the way we do business in North America, and even even in sort of the Western part, of like the UK and stuff. Is like, yeah, here's my business card, and here's your. It's just like this quick, dirty exchange, almost like you're you're, you're doing a drug deal on the corner, as opposed to this, <laughs> this. No, no, no. You and I are to do business together. And and I always even I was doing business years ago with uh, with a gentleman when I was working at the university uh, bookstore at McMaster and he would not do business with me until we broke bread together. And he invited me and my son over to his house with his wife to have lunch before we signed a contract together. And, and, but again, it's a sign of respect. And maybe it goes back to ancient times is like, well, if we trust each other that we're not going to poison each other, then we can do business together. And so anyway, so, so the, the culture there is, is similar. But I think that there's probably enough going on that I don't think anyone has to worry about Kobo going anywhere anytime soon. At least my, I have no insights into the company since I left at the end of 2017 other than my, my gut and my impression. So I think that in terms of Kobo still being a player on the market, I think writers will be fine. And I think Overdrive as a hugely viable market. They just posted, I think, on Publishers Weekly I saw yesterday, which was January 9th. I just saw the increase in library sales and readership that, um, that Rakuten, uh, Rakuten Overdrive, sorry, I just said Overdrive, <laughs> but well, there's still Rakuten Overdrive, but that they posted. Uh, and, and we're not seeing anything uh, but sales to library markets going up, especially for indie authors, as you know, you know, with Macmillan and uh, other larger publishers doing stupid bonehead moves, like making books less available to libraries. Indie they authors can, have never had a better opportunity.
0: I was just going to say, they can make as many of those moves as they like.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> we, you just keep doing that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, we will all tell our readers uh, and our listeners to go and you know request our books through the libraries and through their local bookstores. Uh, so yeah. guys, if you're listening, please go and request mine and Mark's books in your local library, and your local <laughs> bookstore. We, we are very grateful. Um, okay, so... You've spoken about uh, the physical and uh, the fact that, that you know there are physical library books and there are digital library books and that's obviously that sort of overdrive area, but there are um, more than one payment models, aren't there, for how that works yeah. with libraries. So can you just talk a little bit um, about those? Because I think that's one thing that people aren't necessarily aware of.
1: Yeah, of course. And, and let, let me go in because I mean, I've worked at Kobo and I also work uh, part-time with draft to digital uh, as well. So I'm familiar with, let's talk about Overdrive. The main model for a lot of library systems is what's called a one-to-one license, meaning the library buys one copy and then they own that copy forever and can loan it to one customer at a time forever. So if they want, if they have a whole waiting list and they need more copies, they have to buy extra copies. So that's the one-to-one license. And I I know, for example, if you're publishing uh, to Overdrive through Kobo Writing Life, you'll get 50%. And that's uh, the exact same terms you would get if you were direct to OverDrive. And trust me, you do not want to be direct to OverDrive ever in your life. Most authors that I knew, like the big success uh, authors early in the market who were six-figure authors early on, were direct with OverDrive and were desperate not to be. Only because OverDrive is really, really great in terms of the way they communicate with library data. But uh, any author who's used to doing data stuff, it would be kind of like going back to the press play on tape one era of computing. Because that's, no, seriously, it's like, okay, now you've got you to gotta print up your ebook and and mail it to us. Uh, no, a courier pigeon it to us. And then, like, it, the, like the, the logistics are a nightmare. And so, um, with most third-party platforms, you don't get a full 50%. You get either 45%. And I know at draft digital you get 47%. So, it's three points less uh, with the one-to-one license. But the one thing you don 't get, for example, from Cobo Writing Life, but you can get through draft to digital and but and maybe other uh, other other platforms i 'm not as familiar with them is you get the uh, the cost per checkout model, and the cost per checkout model is a little bit different, so the one to one licensing is kind of like a curated think of it like traditional publishing where Somebody in New York or or London decides what books are going to be purchased and then distributed to W H Smith or Barnes Noble or whatever and put out into the market. Um, but Am- when Amazon and the and the, and the Kindle uh, market changed things, is suddenly you could you could bypass the gatekeepers and all the books the slush pile was put right up on a catalog and let consumers decide. So the cost per checkout model is like the the secondary model, like the, the, the slush pile is available to everyone. So the, the library has the choice and, and sometimes they divide their budget up and say, okay, we're going to purchase some things and then we're going to allow our consumers. And so some of the titles have been pushed out through the one-to-one that are limited to a budget. And then the other ones are, uh, and again, they're often limited to a budget too, where they just push all the titles into their catalog and say, well, we'll let, we'll let the patrons decide what books they want. And, but what happens there is uh, with the the cost per checkout, instead of, you know, 47% or 50, you you get about uh, uh, one tenth of the price. So like 10% of what the price would be. So let's pretend it's a $10 book. So instead of $5, you get a dollar. However, you get a dollar every single time somebody checks that book out. So imagine, for example, um, you sell one, you make $5. But then if five or six people check it out, that would have been $6. You made not $5. And so it's more of a long-term thinking thing. Imagine a book club wanting to all read your, your, your book. And a lot of them want to get the ebook from the library, for, for example, with the the cost per checkup model, they could all get it right now and they could all read it and have it done. Um, and, and, and you would make a, you know, let's say a dollar per, uh, per everyone that you sell as opposed to oh, no, a library only bought one and they can't afford to buy more. So everyone else has to wait. <laughs> Um, you know that 's where macmillan would say good they 'll go buy the, the hardcover for forty five dollars no no they 're not <laughs> so um, that 's the that's the that 's the difference in those models and and the only reason that I know that the cost per checkout model works is because for audiobooks that 's where i 've made most of my money i haven 't made it through the the, um, the token system on Audible or Kobo or, or, or whatever, I've made most of my sales through the library market and a lot of them are through the cost per checkout. So every single time some new person checks out one of my audiobooks through one of the library systems, whether it's Overdrive or Hoopla or High Books or all, like there's, there's dozens of places like that. I'm getting these micropayments that really add up over time. So that's, that's, that's kind of a cool thing that I think authors need to be aware of.
0: Absolutely, and do you publish those audiobooks through like the same platform still? So draft digital or Overdrive?
1: Uh, so the audiobooks I have done most of my audiobooks through uh, Findaway Voices, and Findaway Voices is an American company, also located in Cleveland, Ohio, four hours away from me. Um, and and what I like about there is you can set your unlike with ACX, um, you can set your price, and and you, the only place your price isn't set for you is Audible. <laughs> so they they just that's what they do. But um you can set your price you set your retail price but then you also set your library price. Mm-hmm. You know same thing as you can do with ebooks and so I've been very fortunate to uh be able to do a combination of you know uh, hiring people to do audiobooks and shorter books right? So think about let's say let's say the average price to create an audiobook is $350 an hour to pay the narrator outright and then you have all the rights and make the money right? Um if you're doing a 10,000 word short story or a, a, a digital chat book, which I've done a number of them that are like 15 to 18,000 words. I'm only paying for two hours. I'm not paying for 10 hours. So a lot of the audio books I've done have been shorter. I haven't yet made my money back on, on the, on the only full length book that I have in audio. Um, well, yeah, that's the, the novel where I, I paid 350 bucks an hour for eight hours of, of whatever. I haven't made my money back on that but I've made my money back on all of those shorter ones. And the beautiful thing about this is I've been doing uh, combinations of hiring people, doing the royalty split option. Uh, I'm trying to pay for most of them myself so I can then own the audio file. And then what I can do is I can take all those separate stories and create a digital bundle, like a digital full length, 50,000, 60,000, hundred thousand word book of audio um, that I already own and I've already paid for and have a completely new product that's full-length, then maybe the full-length book that's 10 hours is gonna be priced above $15 on Audible, and then maybe it'll sell there too. So,
0: it's a strategy love, I'm using. <laughs> I love that about, you know, every time I speak to you, you've, you come up with some other, you know, really innovative, creative thing to, you know, uh, repurpose your content. I, 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 I'm like, oh, all of the ideas, <laughs> all of the things you have to do. And are you not narrating your own?
1: Uh, so I've narrated my own. Uh, I will be narrating uh, an author's guide to working with libraries and bookstores. I narrated the seven P's of publishing success. Mm-hmm. And I have narrated, uh, so Snowman Shivers, which is like a free digital chapbook of, it's 10,000 words. It's two short stories. Uh, it's free in ebook. And I narrated the audiobook because it's so short. And only because the one story, that old silk cat they found, I have read Hundreds and hundreds of times to school groups because it's actually appropriate for younger people. I've read it, uh, libraries of it, and it's so such a short story. It's such a crowd pleaser, and because I've read it so many times, I felt I can do this one. I can't do uh, a full length book. I can't do many of my other stories, so I'd rather hire professional narrators for those. Now, what I will do, and, and, and I found this out is, uh, so I did Active Reader was the first book I did with Findaway Voices, and I hired this amazing narrator who's a normally a romance reader and with the cool thing about that is i had a whole bunch because i write twilight zone-ish style fiction or black mirror or whatever i a lot of the reviews that i got were from fans of his who came because they were romance readers and i loved his voice and a lot of them were you know i've never heard of this mark leslie guy i never thought i would enjoy horror but i really liked his stories thanks to nick yeah, and yeah. so I hired Nick again for another job. I'm like, hey, I want, I want to get these romance readers checking <laughs> me out. Um, because again, it's not, it's not like uh, Friday the 13th slasher kind of horror. It's, it's more Twilight Zone-ish and, and, and weird stuff. Um, but what I found out is so Nick had done my author notes. And all of the short stories I've ever published, I always have done the behind the story notes. And a lot of my reviews uh, from, from readers, they love the notes. They love hearing about how the story happened. So what I'm doing is I'm going back and because I'm finding a way you can just go in and replace those files. I'm going to do all the author notes myself. And I did that with um, uh, Chris Humphreys, a uh, friend of mine, a beautiful British accent. He's a, a, a Canadian uh, who was, who was born in the UK and he, so he did one of the stories with an American accent cause he's an actor and he can do those things. But then he did the other I was like, no dude, the British accent, it sounds more intelligent and sophisticated. But then, <laughs> But then when he went to do the author notes, I'm like, no, 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 I'll I'll, I'll do the author notes because it sounds weird when you're saying I and you are very sophisticated and you sound like an intelligent person, whereas I'm just like an idiot. And so I'd rather be in my voice. So uh, I think that's important. Uh, and, and and I think nonfiction potentially, because I speak uh, to authors all the time and I have a podcast, mm. I think doing the, the nonfiction books in my voice is probably... Uh, a nicer thing, like Malcolm Gladwell, for example, his new book. I mean, he's he narrates it himself, and I always like I always like when the nonfiction is done by by the author so long as the author doesn't have an annoying voice that's the scary part right
0: I was just talking about this so I I, because I also listen to your podcast I would find it weird if your uh, non-fiction was not narrated by you I feel like (laughs) what also though I think you have that tone that's quite hypnotic though and so just how you're talking about voices and how important voices um I was having a conversation a, a while ago that that was around how important that is now and how important that's going to be in the future. Because I, whilst I started listening to audio and podcasts at what, you know, one speed, normal speed. Now I listen at two speed. So yes. actually half of the time people sound weird talking normally. Cause I'm like, wow, you, you speak really slow. Yeah. <laughs> Like sometimes I'm like, is this real? Do people really speak that stuff? I'm like, no, they're doing it for audio and I just speak really fast. Um, but yes, I, um, I I don't even know where I was going with that t- tangent, but yes, uh, definitely. Well, I
1: find the same thing too, cause I started, uh, I went to speed and a half and now I started at two times cause a friend of mine said that she listens at two times speed and I went, well, I should give that a shot because this eight hour book, I want to try and get it done on this four hour drive. Uh, and it's not, it's not that, hard. I mean, unless the person speaks really fast already, it's yeah. not difficult yeah. uh, to consume. And I love it because I can read twice as fast now.
0: Exactly. There are, I have to say, there are a couple of podcasts that I have to have either on 1.5 or 1.75, just because one of the speakers speaks quite quickly. But right. most of them I have on too. Um, <laughs> anyway, here's, here's our, this podcast is about our, our listening habits today.
1: Um, <laughs> We're rebel authors, aren't we?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, 100%. Um, okay, so obviously there are going to be geographical differences um, between different countries, but broadly speaking, how do authors actually get their books into libraries and all and, and bookstores?
1: I, I always subscribe to the, the methodology that you should define yourself as a big fish in a small pool, and usually the small pool is your hometown. Right. So I mean, unless you live in a big metropolis, um, my my best selling book still to this day is Spooky Sudbury, which is co-authored in Sudbury. The city itself is a and, and the surrounding area is a population of about 90,000 people. So to me, that was a big city from where I grew up, whereas, you know, Toronto, millions of people and, and Hamilton has half a million people and stuff. And, and Montreal, the second largest city in Canada, still the sales of Macabre Montreal come nowhere close to Sudbury because there's something about local, there's something about um, wanting to support local and and stuff like that. So I would always start as local as you can. When you move away from local, what you're trying to do is you're still trying to find what is the relevance. So for example, and let's use Joanna Penn because we both uh, admire her and and a lot of people know who she is. (laughs) Uh, Her fiction is set around the world. So her, you know, novels take place in cathedrals and in all kinds of unique places in the world. So if she's pitching one of her books in a foreign country to, to, to you and I, she could potentially pitch it to the library saying, well, this novel, you know, uh, 30% of the novel takes place in this city. And that could be an interesting thing. And that's why I always I recommend not just talking to the acquisitions people at the library when you reach out to them, but talking to the reference librarians. Because I I still do a lot of my research for the nonfiction ghost story books I do in, in libraries. And I spend a lot of time with research librarians and they are data nerds. They love, love sharing information. So even if the acquisitions person is not interested in your book, if the if the reference librarian knows that this book is set here. or or that the author has some sort of connection to the library or the town or or whatever. Maybe it's their family, right? Maybe they, they came from the, from, from a European country and they live in North America now and their family's from this small town. Maybe the library is interested in that because a lot of times people, this happens in Canada a lot because we're so close to the U S and they kind of dominate the culture. They, um, People will. Uh, you know, the teacher will say, you have to read a book by a Canadian author. And kids go, ah, I've never heard of any Canadian authors. So they go to their local library, and that's where the reference librarian like, well, yeah, I can even find you some local writers. And so um, I think playing off of the uniqueness and the relevance to the area, to the culture, to um, um, anything related to the city, uh, ideally starting with you as a local author, is a really great place to start. So it does get harder. It does get hard. It's going to be hard for me to, to sell one of my books to a, a library in India, for example, unless I already have fans there who are interested in my books, and then that's easy. And that's where on your newsletter, on your news group, you can, you know, you, uh, I always say this for Kindle Unlimited, uh, people who are coming out of Kindle Unlimited or, or KDP Select and they're publishing wide, and, and the people who complain, I can't get your books for free anymore. I'm not going to read you. I hate you. He's like, no, now everyone can get my books for free. You just have to ask where I'm at the library. Mm -hmm. right so it's kind of like no you can still read my books for free so you you have a positive to give to them but it's kind of like but but I'm only limiting my customers to this really small base now I know Amazon's the world's biggest bookstore but it's still globally when you think about it it's it's a very small readership base and it's very constricted whereas if you include libraries suddenly you get global and suddenly anyone in the world practically can get access to your books for free Mm -hmm. Um, but that's where maybe on your newsletter or your news group if you know some things about where people are coming from because you can usually tell uh, that you have people from certain countries. I mean, I know on, on, on a podcast, I know that, and in some aspects of my newsletter, I know that they're coming from certain countries. So it's like, hey, <clears throat> want to do me a favor? Cost yeah. you nothing. Go ask for my book at your library.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you don't even have to read it. We'd love you to, but, you know, <laughs> ideally, No, no it. but you do
1: want them. Actually, you do want to read it, because you've got to remember, bookstores keep books on the shelves uh, like tenants paying rent and and they want to turn their inventory three times a year. So if you bring in a book, ideally you want it to sell uh, and and then reorder it and sell. So you're constantly replenishing stock. If it doesn't sell, you either have to mark it down or return it to get, right? So that's the kind of thing. Libraries where they don't sell books, if the book is not circulated, they get rid of it. If people don't actually check it out, they get rid of it. Now, I don't know how they do that with digital books, but I know with print books, if there's no circulation, those are the, you, they get sold in the library, you know, the little sales that they have and stuff like that. So, so actually, it's cool to get the initial sale, but it's even cooler to get uh, relevance and actually having uh, patrons actually reading the book because then that tells the library, oh, every, we should keep an eye out for more of these, this author's books.
0: And that also leads into PLR, doesn't it?
1: Oh my goodness, PLR! Uh, this is one of the wonderful things that us Commonwealth countries have in common. Yes. Sorry, oh, another apart from the asked. Queen,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> um, and the parliamentary system. But uh, yeah, so with public lending rights, uh, I mean, I'm f- more familiar with it in Canada, but there are it's it's available in 30 different countries around the world. What it is is uh, for for lack of royalties and the respect of of the country to want to have you know Canadian authors or British authors in. In those libraries, um, you actually get paid based on a random sampling. Uh, the way they work differently in different countries, but in Canada, it's a random sampling of of a bunch of libraries. And every time they find you know your print book, your uh, audiobook, or your ebook, you get a hit. And oftentimes, it's thirty dollars per hit. Now, you know my traditionally published books that sell for twenty five dollars. I get $2 a year later, 30% withholding against returns. Uh, But if they find that book in the library, I get $30. (laughs) So it's like selling, I can't do the math, but that's like selling 60 copies of of the book. Um, Now with my eBooks, obviously I make more on those, uh, the ones that I self publish, um, but I still get, I still get a hit on those. And so just, just it adds up over time because I've been engaged in public lending rights and every year in Canada, it's like working with overdrive. It's manual. You got to fill out these forms and mail them in. You can't even do it online. Um, but last year, my public lending right earnings actually paid for our spring break trip to the Dominican Republic, all inclusive, because I got the credit card bill for, for the, for the booking of going, going there for, for, uh, the week around the same time that the check came in and I went, Oh my God, that's pretty much exactly what this trip cost me. And I went, Thanks, public landing right. You paid for my, you paid for my vacation this year. That uh, and, and I mean, I think last year uh, it was actually larger than the, the royalty check I received from Dundurn, uh, one of my tradition, uh, traditional publishers. So it does add up over time. And that's where having multiple formats. Now, I know in Canada they only just added uh, digital books in the last few years. So suddenly my catalog went from, let's say, 20 books that were available in print to 40. <laughs> and then when they added audiobooks that, you know, added an, another eight books to that. So th- those, little, little things can really add up. And again, you know, diversifying your income, right? Multiple formats, ebook and print and audio, but then uh, library uh, sales, uh, you know, or, or public lending, right. Is at least for non-Americans is, uh, is a great way for you to earn additional revenue from your books. And, and, and that, in that case, like, you know, the, the books from Dundurn. So if I buy, even if I buy it at retail and I give it to the library, my new book that comes from Dundurn to make sure the library has stock. If, if they randomly sample that library and I get a hit, I, even though I maybe spent $25 on the book, I'm going to get $6 more at the end of the day. I, it's not, it's not smart investment, but, um, but if I bought it at a 40% discount, then obviously I'm making a little bit more. So I often will donate my new books, and and again, they uh, they only usually care about front list for the most part, unless there's an, mm-hmm. some reason like um, a book that was published five years ago that's now a Netflix movie. Well, then they're, they're going to care about that now. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's kind of uh, otherwise they only want new books. So it's uh, published in the last six months. Consider donating a print copy uh, to your library, and this is where I, again Joanna Penn. Advises and make and make a hardcover available because libraries prefer hardcovers hardcovers last longer So their investment in a hardcover is a bit more money, but then then it uh, it doesn't wear out as fast and libraries tend to prefer those
0: I'm trying to get mine into hardcover this year. That's me mm-hmm. trying to be a good publisher Which I'm not me using. too.
1: Yeah, I know you <laughs> do and me what both. We say.
0: <laughs> Do what we say everyone. Exactly.
1: Yes, not <laughs> what we do.
0: Yeah God. um the PLR thing, every time I hear you talk about it just blows my mind. Um, but so one of the things that you've talked about, um, a lot today is around relationships and building those relationships. So what kinds of things can authors and writers do to help their bookstores and their libraries?
1: Uh, I mean, always, always think about their business, think about who they are, think about the time of year. So for example, I was, I think I was chatting with someone, uh, recently about, um, uh, they were trying to uh, arrange book signings in December at, at a local bookstore. And I was like, dude, no, 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 no. That's the only time of year bookstores make money, right? Christmas sales. <laughs> they want customers in, out, buy the stuff, like move stock, get things out. They don't have time to set up tables and, and take up all this space because they move so, move so much of their inventory gets moved at that time of year. So even just understanding certain times of the year for certain businesses. Uh, I mean, it, at an academic bookstore, the middle of August to the middle of September, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's nuts. It's absolutely crazy. So you, you, you don't want to go into a bookstore then, but there are quiet periods where they're going to want to try and draw in crowds and stuff like that. So, cause some, some of those academic bookstores like when I worked at McMaster had a huge trade section. So a general interest, right? Cause they have thousands of people who work on campus and they come there at lunchtime every day, right? So there's different traffic patterns to understand. So downtown stores are often lunchtime, crowds, as opposed to if you're out in the suburbs, it's usually after dinner, those kinds of things. Um, so thinking about those elements of where the store is and what their traffic patterns are, what times of year they're, they're busy or not. But then also, um, uh, when, what is relevant about you and your book, right? So if, I, if I'm writing Twilight zone speculative fiction and horror and stuff like that, uh, I'm probably not going to do well in a, in a bookstore that uh, specializes in business books right, or, 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 or that kind of crowd, I'm gonna to have, to, to have to pay attention to, does my book actually serve the needs of their patrons? Um, and, that's, and that's a critical thing. And I, and I think it always starts, just like the advice you get for social media, it always starts with being a part of the community and engaging and listening and understanding. Uh, 80% give and 20% sell, that kind of thing. I think that's critical. Um, again, let's go to, back to the business card analogy. It's rather like, you know, the idiot who just walks around thrusting their business card or their, or their postcard about their book in your face before they even have an actual conversation with you. I mean, it's just nobody wants to be sold to. So, uh, that's, that's another really, really important thing. The, uh, the other thing that is kind of important is, you know, if you want to go in and do a, an event at a library or a bookstore, um, think about the impression you're making on that, uh, bookseller, because they're going to have to invest a lot of time and energy into setting up a book signing or an event and they you are interacting with their customers if they think you're a dick they're not going to want to plant you i mean unless you're unless you're a, a big name dick who like hollywood star or something it doesn't matter they're just going to put you there because idiots will come in droves to come and buy their book but i mean for the standard author you actually have to be a decent person you actually have to treat people with respect because you know, I mean, as a manager of a bookstore, uh I would definitely like certain authors that would come in and do dickish things all the time and were and were rude to my staff that's I never want to have them do a book signing because they're going to be rude to my customers too. I was like, get out no, I'm not why am I doing you any favors however. Um, authors who were who gracious and wonderful and kind people is like, I do anything I could to help them. It's like, Oh my God, let's set up a signing. Let's advertise you. Let's sell lots of your books. And then the other thing I would often do is if I had a relationship with, with an author and someone was coming in and they were looking for a style of book. I mean, I had, uh, I've worked in bookstores where I've had, you know, 10,000 titles. I've had a hundred thousand titles. I've had 40,000 titles in stock. There's always lots of choice. But oftentimes I would default to the personal story, the personal connection, and say, "Oh my God, this—you know—you like this style of book." Well, you know, the author was in here six months ago, and they did a—they did a talk about this book, and they shared this really cool story about their grandmother and and how she used to tell them uh, stories when they were sitting on the whatever lake, which is not too far from here. And blah 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 blah. So suddenly, I've—I've I've not just put the book in the customer's hand as a bookseller, but I've—I've I've, I've kind of uh, synergetically or at least spiritually connected the reader and the author before the, before the books, even in the, in the potential reader's hands, I've suddenly made a connection between the two of them. And I know that seems like a lot of work, but it is. Writing a book is hard work. Putting your soul and your energy into writing a book is hard work. Therefore there's no magic bullet to selling that book because you, in my mind, the relationships require that same sort of commitment and energy and it is difficult if you're an introvert it's difficult if you you prefer not to have those interactions but but introverts are usually okay with in-depth meaningful conversations rather than hey how's the weather did you see what that sports team did that's that's not good for an introvert but actually having one-on-one meaningful conversations is hugely valuable it could be draining um and and so maybe it's easier for an introvert Rather than a you know a salesperson person.
0: <laughs> I'm laughing so hard because um, I, I find the whole introvert extrovert scale fascinating. I I say this all the time, but I think in a very extroverted way. I I gesture with my hands. I have to write <laughs> things on post its to understand what it is that I think. Um, but when you then put me in a room full of people, I'm like. <gasps> You know, I, I sort of shrink into myself and my wife always says to me, uh, my wife, I have to say is the most, it's so annoying. She is so charming. Everybody loves her more than me. And I'm like, but no, but, 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 but no, there's nothing I can do about it. She's so fucking charming. And, um, uh, but anyway, like she'll waltz into a room and just, you know, everybody will, you know, follow her and, and she can do all of that small talk. And, and I just feel like dying when I have to do a small talk. and. So that is very much the introverted side of me, you know, <laughs> I, I, that, 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 but like you say, actually, just like on a podcast, I can do in depth, you know, I, with be it strangers or new people or, or whatever, I can do that in depth conversation. So, yeah, I love that. The other thing I wanted to um, just circle back to, excuse me, uh, that you were talking about. So many times when we talk about marketing, we forget the story. Like everybody talks about advertising and Facebook and Amazon and and book newsletter swaps, but what's the story? You know, we are storytellers. We should be incorporating storytelling in our marketing because that's what readers are coming for. And I just, I wanted to just pull that out because I think it's such an important lesson for everybody.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, that is how we connect with other people. From the moment we were children and somebody read to us, whether it was our mother or father or librarian or, or favorite aunt or uncle, usually you had a story. And if, and if there wasn't reading to you, there was storytelling. When you think about dinner time. I think about when I was a kid and I would sit there and, and my parents would have company and they'd be playing cards and, and I'd, I'd sneak into the kitchen to get snacks off the table and stuff like that they're telling stories to each other. They're relaying. When I get together with my best friend, Steve, um, you know, we've known each other for 40 plus years. Every time we get together, we rehash the same stories of uh, the magical stories of of, of the silly things that we did together or the fun times or the, or the, even the, even the hard times. You're so right. We forget it is about story because that's what connects people. And that's, where the real magic happens mm-hmm. is the story is like, I'm not going to tell you about my book, but let me tell you a story mm-hmm. about why I wrote this book. And I, and I, and that's why I think, you know, I talked about when I first self published One Hand Screaming in 2004 and I did the author, I did the notes. I mean, there are some readers who's like, well, there's all these notes. I don't give a shit. I want another story. But, but most of the, most of the comments I've received are, oh my God, that was so cool that you shared where you were and how the story came to you or why these two stories came from one idea. So you're so right. And people forget that. And, um, and thanks for reminding me of that because I forget it too. So. I, was, do I do valuable. too, I do too.
0: And it sort of half, half came from when you were talking about author notes earlier. I actually wrote it down. I was like, Sasha, go and you know put in the bloody author notes because I've written it down <laughs> so many times before. You must do author notes. And I still haven't gone and put them, you know, because we have the ability to just go and slap in a bit of a change in there because we're, we're yeah. indie authors. So yeah, and um, you know, and I know where these stories have come from. So I absolutely need to do that. So I have written it down as an action. Awesome. I will do it. You can I'll
1: follow up on you. I'll check. I'll check in six months to see where you've <laughs> yes. gone with that. Um,
0: okay. So last question before um, the the infamous infamous question about rebellion. But um, I can't have you on here without really asking you for for a few of your top tips for everybody for wide marketing because you're sure. like the king of wide marketing. So. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think it comes down, I mean, again, it comes down to relationships, right? When, when you are, uh, and, and so I do a lot of work with Apple, getting promotions for authors for Apple. And I know uh, Kobo does this too. Um, when they look at an author and they go to their website, they go to check to see, are you inclusive of the, the platform. I mean, I would get uh, angry emails from authors saying, oh, I published my books at Cobo and, you, and I, I, your book's been there for five days and I haven't sold a single copy and you suck. <clears throat> and then the signature of their email is go buy my books on Amazon. Uh, so it was kind of like people pay attention to those things. So uh, being inclusive uh, on your website, on your links. And, and again, you know, Draft2Digital has the free books uh, books to read, which is universal book links, which is easy, automatically takes you to the right... Uh, there are other other ways to do that. You can go and do your own manual links, uh, inclusive include links to your local bookstore if um, if if you want to support them. Let people know that hey, you can special order my book through this bookstore, right? Just supporting them. Uh, the other thing is pricing. People forget they they set a U.S. price. And they just kind of go to town because most people are publishing, uh, you know, using American companies like uh, Amazon or whatever. And they forget that there are different price tolerances in different countries. Now, in the UK, the big publishers are still a lot more aggressive. So you got to be a little bit lower in your price. In Canada and Australia, we're getting ripped off in book prices like crazy. So, so that extra dollar that the indie author can charge in Canada, Australia or New Zealand is not that significant when they compare it to the fact that, oh look, a $15 ebook from Random House or a $5 book from Indie Author. Hmm, I could buy three books from the Indie Author for the same price. So you're not ripping off your customers so long as your book is priced reasonably within the top sellers in those categories. So I usually want to maintain um, uh, local pricing in Canadian, US, Australian New Zealand, and Euros. Um, And I know Amazon doesn't allow you to do New Zealand for example, but New Zealand is a gigantic market There's lots of people who read books in New Zealand and 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 they're strapped right because a lot of them have to deal with People that are still pricing ebooks as if they had to be put on a put on a raft and and shipped halfway around the world to get to New Zealand, but uh, That's not the case
0: (laughs) amazing okay last question well penultimate question Um. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell readers, and I know you're a total rebel all of the time, but (laughs) tell readers about a time you unleashed your inner rebel.
1: Oh my God, Uh, almost every day. I think for me, and and writers can do this because we're creative people, so I think this is important. There are rules, there are outlines, there are guidelines. There are always pathways within those guidelines, within those rules to still forge your own path. And so I think one of the things that um, God, I, it, it's I, I, I should have thought of this in advance to, to see when I was a rebel. I think uh, you know. Let, let me go back to uh, let me go back to uh, the, the my days at Kobo, for example. Uh, I've always been a purveyor of um, uh, apologizing rather than asking for permission. So oftentimes they're like, "Oh yeah, I went and bought this domain. Oh, I went and did this. Oh, I I, I signed up for this. I hope it's okay." Um, I, I think. As a writer, I do that all the time too. Um, and, and, and I think when we indie publish, we you we, we give yourself permission to set the rules and you say, okay, I understand this is what I can do, but I also understand, for example, one of the greatest things is an ebook does not have to be 300 pages down between two pieces of cloth. An ebook can be 40,000 words, 50,000 words, 100,000 words, an ebook can be 5,000 words, it can be 10,000 words, it can be all of those things. and so. Recognizing the value of your IP as a creator and being able to manipulate your own IP because it's yours. It's your clay. It's you do whatever you want with it. The minute you sell those rights or give up those rights, i.e., you're giving up your rights when you sign a contract with a traditional publisher in many ways. They're, you're, they're giving you money for rights. In Amazon as well, when you go into KDP Select, you're giving up your rights to sell this on other platforms and to make money in different ways. So I think recognizing the value of your IP in all of the ways that you can exploit yourself, rather than have other people exploit you, that's a true rebel. That's a true rebel um, uh, approach. The other thing I would say in terms of being rebellious in this age of Wide versus Kindle Unlimited is if you are. Uh, publishing your books through Kindle Unlimited, and you're making the majority of your sales by being exclusive to Amazon, you are not an independent author. You are a corporate writer, I'm sorry to say.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: yes. That's my rebel nature right there. <laughs> I'm going to shame you all for making lots of money off of a single retailer.
0: <laughs> and And also be slightly jealous that you're also making lots of money. <laughs> Well, well, of course, least, be
1: jealous, yeah. but just like yeah. yeah, but you're a corporate writer, and I'm actually independent <laughs> <laughs> oh. and broke. <laughs> but also, all
0: Ku listeners, we do love you, really. So don't uh, switch off.
1: <laughs> no, I love them, but I but I like but I like being honest with people. I like yeah. I like being honest. Like yeah. it, it's the best thing you can do. Is is uh, I just read um, is it Kim Scott? Is it the um, uh, oh my god, what's the name of the book? It was the. Um, Uh, oh God, I have to look it up on my, on my, on the, on on the Kobo app where I just listened to it. Um, there's radical candor, right? Sugarcoating is not going to do anyone any favors. So yeah, of course I respect you, but I'm also going to point out things that I think can benefit you, whether you do it as a leader, as a manager, or whether it's with a friend. You know, like saying, Oh, this cover's really pretty. No, it sucks. It, you need to let them know it sucks because they're gonna they're gonna go out into the world thinking that their baby is beautiful and, 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 and it ain't. So yeah. I think we do need to be honest with each other. even if we love and respect, we still mm-hmm. need to be honest with each other. So it's kinda like, no, you're a corporate writer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and and there is nothing wrong with that if that's working for you. But
1: um, no, 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 not at all. I was a corporate. Guy I'm for wide. Years.
0: Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> I don't think I. Well, I worked in a corporate hellhole, but um, you know, I uh, I am I am wide because I, you know, I love Kobo I love you know Apple, and I want to be wide. So I want I want people to be able to my, buy my books all over the place
1: and get um, them for free in libraries around the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Don't forget to go to your local library. Um. Uh, yes. So. Oh, you're
1: going to do a giveaway, aren't you? I am. Uh, I would love to help your rebel author listeners. And I want to, I want to uh, send a signed copy to uh, however you just determined to draw, uh, lucky winner of uh, an author's guide to working with libraries and bookstores. I will mail it to you no matter where you are in the world. And I will personally inscribe it to you as well. Wow. That will bring up the value by a whole uh, minus one cent
0: um well so what i'll do is i will uh do a rafflecopter and i will pop it in um i'll pop the link to the post in the show notes and i will pop the rafflecopter in the on my website uh in the episode thing what are words at this time of day <laughs> coffee um okay tell everyone where they can find out more about you your books your podcast your everything your audiobooks all of that jazz
1: MarkLusley.ca is the best way to uh, get a hold of me. I do mo- most of my fiction uh, and, and the nonfiction ghost stories under Mark Leslie. But because people in the industry know me as Lefave, I, I use Mark Leslie Lefave for those nonfiction books on writing and publishing.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you to all of the patrons supporting this, the show. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Thank you to listeners. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Mark Lefebvre. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Don't forget that Mark is running a giveaway for this episode, you can win a signed paperback of his book, just go to the show notes to check that out. And also I am recruiting for my street team and ARC team, so you can also find the link in the show notes if you'd like to join my team. Last, but by no means least, the question of the week this week is, where do you buy your books? Next week, I'm joined by Jules Horn, and we are talking about how you can start from the beginning and cultivate your writing for audio. How can you improve your writing for the ear? Join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.